God for his mercy. Well, we'll go ahead and dismiss our kids to children's ministry, and the rest of you can have a seat. And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, chapter 26. We'll be in Proverbs 26 today, beginning in verse 12. Proverbs 26, beginning in verse 12, says, Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. The sluggard says, There is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard in his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So today we're going to talk about laziness. And I did something incredibly inventive and novel to prepare for this sermon. I did not prepare at all. I did no work in prep. No, I'm kidding. So, so that way the sermon itself is a living illustration of the perils of laziness that you have to endure for what will be surely 60 minutes because I have not prepared. No, kidding. Uh, we're going to talk about laziness today, and before we get into what the text has to say in particular, we have been seeing verses about laziness consistently through Proverbs chapter 26. In fact, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 16, is, is in essence the last word on laziness in the book of Proverbs. But we have seen three extended sections in three different chapters on the subject, and we have seen many verses dealing with this subject and I don't believe we've covered it yet in a sermon, and so we will do that today. Some sins are squishier than others. Some sins are harder to pin down than others. And laziness is one of those. And one of the reasons for that is that laziness belongs in the family of the too much of a good thing sins. You understand what I mean by that? There are certain sins that are sins because they are essentially too much of a good thing. Rest and relaxation is a pleasure given to us by God, but the sluggard takes a good thing too far, right? I think it's important to understand that because it's not one of those things that you can just nail down and say, is this me or is this not me? It's a little bit squishier than that. Um, a, a good corollary to laziness would be the sin of gluttony. Uh, you can't just abstain from food, right? Like, if you do that, you'll die. And the same with relaxation and rest. You can't just stop relaxing. If you struggle with overeating, you can't just stop all eating indefinitely. If you struggle with relaxation, with laziness, you can't simply cease resting. If you do either of those two things, you'll die. And not only that, but you can't turn food entirely into a subject of if this is simply only fuel, because God has created it for more than fuel. The same with rest. You can't turn it purely into this is simply the necessary downtime my body needs to recharge so that I can go back into work. It's like, no, God gave us rest to be enjoyed. And so that's why this is a little bit more of a squishy, difficult to pin down kind of sin. And there's another similarity between laziness and gluttony, and that is it's the kind of thing that sneaks up on you over time. You know, you, you don't go from eating 2,000 calories a day 
to suddenly doubling that and doing that consistently. No, you go from eating 2,000 calories a day to eating 2,200 calories a day, and then maybe 2,300 calories a day, and then down the road, you're at 4,000 calories a day, and for a while, even then, the consequences of that choice don't seem to be super dramatic or obvious. It's the kind of thing that sneaks up on you over time. There are sins that have immediate consequences, and they're sort of like touching a hot stove, and you get immediate feedback that you've done something stupid. And those are honestly, like, in many ways, sometimes the worst ones, but also the most easy to identify and avoid. But then there's a whole bunch of sins that fall into this category over here where the consequences of the sin are delayed and they're progressive. And so you actually can be uh, developing habits and patterns of behavior that are sinful, but you're not getting any immediate feedback. And so the whole thing kind of sneaks up on you. And I think that's one of the reasons for the way that Proverbs talks about laziness. There is no more cartoonish language in all of the Bible than on the subject of sluggardliness and laziness. Like what I mean by cartoonish is if you've ever been to an amusement park and seen a caricature, like if you have any physical flaw whatsoever, expect it to be 12 times bigger in that artist's caricature. And we all know that we're getting that when we sit down for one of those sorts of things. If you have big ears in real life, well, you're going to have, you know, satellites in, in the caricature. The language regarding laziness in the book of Proverbs is like that. It is extreme. It is comical. I would say it's tragic comedy. It's painful to read. It's rough. It's also a bit absurd, intentionally absurd. And that is because this is one of those sins that's just so easy for it to sneak up on us. One author I read this week said that laziness is sort of like cobwebs that start forming around your motivations. And then imperceptibly over time, those cobwebs turn into iron chains. It's a very difficult thing to perceive laziness. And sometimes by the time it has manifested itself in a truly damaging way so as to alert us uh, of its existence, it almost feels like it's too late at that point. The idea here is that this can happen to anybody. Derek Kidner, who wrote one of the best uh, commentaries on Proverbs, writes this, the sluggard is no freak, but as often as not, an ordinary man who has made too many excuses, too many refusals, and too many postponements it has all been as imperceptible and as pleasant as falling asleep. So when we look at this text, what we're really looking for here are cobwebs. Or, in keeping with the language of the text, sluggards, slugs, I googled how to spot a slug infestation. I know that that happens. I know that gardens can get infested with slugs. I know that they eat cabbages and they eat hostas and all sorts of things like that. So I just Googled how to spot a slug infestation. And one of the things was, do your cabbages have holes in them? Which is kind of hard to preach. But the other one was uh, slime trails. Do you see a lot of slime trails? And so what I think this text can do for us today is to show us some slime trails, some, some indicators that laziness is present in our lives. Uh, there are three basic slime trails in the text. The first is a failure to start. The second is a failure to finish. 
And the third is a failure to take responsibility. And we'll get to those in a moment. Now, as we go through these slime trails, I want to encourage you in a few specific ways. The first is, like I said before, I doubt very much that anybody here lines up perfectly with the caricature we see in the text. And so that could lead us to think, well, I just don't have this problem. It's like, well, yeah, you probably don't look like, like a cartoon. Like you probably don't actually leave your hand literally buried in the dish, uh, too lazy to bring it to your mouth. So none of us, I would suppose, in this room are going to line up in particular, like specific specificity with the descriptions exactly. That's why we're looking for indicators of the presence of this attitude, the presence of this sin, not assuming that this sin has already grabbed you entirely. And uh, if so, I don't think you'd be here at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And most of you aren't here at 10 o'clock. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> come on, you got to give me a dig. One way to think about laziness in our lives is to think about how our kids went to picking up Easter eggs last Saturday. There were kids who showed more industry <laughs> in 10 minutes. It's just ask them. It's a, they're bragging. It's a, it's a bragging point. It's like, how many eggs did you get? They'll know. And how quickly did you get them? I mean, they won't know that. But you observed. If you were here, you saw the level of energy they they. they they were able, they were uh, capable of to pick up eggs and to put them in the basket. And that's because there was an obvious reward and there was enthusiasm behind that activity. And so I think if you're diagnosing the existence of laziness in your own lives, what you don't want to do is you don't want to look for that one area of life where you are hustling and saying, I'm fine. Because given the right circumstances, all of us can be motivated to do a particular thing, right? We can, we can all have areas where we are absolutely hardworking, and we can have areas where we are not hardworking. I myself can look at my life and say, you know, in a lot of ways, I do work hard. But what I've found over time is, is that if the attitude of laziness is in my heart, if the sin is in me, there will be some manifestation in my life where I'm letting the sin of laziness slide. And for me personally, the harder I work, the more lazy I am toward like, caring for my own health, for instance. You can see that in people. And so like with the kids, you know, it, it's a crazy idea to think about like how many eggs did you get? How fast did you get them? Okay, how quickly do you pick up your toys? It's like the, the difference is astonishing. So, so what we're not looking for is do I match up with the caricature? What we're really looking for is is this potentially somewhere in my life? Remember, sins are more dangerous than you realize they are. And what we don't do with sin is we say, well, it's only over here in this part of me, and therefore it's tolerable. No, laziness is a sin, and we don't want it in any of our lives. We don't want it anywhere. So we have all these different areas of life that we're managing all at the same time. And it's important to remember that when we talk about work, we don't use the word work the way the world uses the word work. We don't mean work equals career. For us, we are stewards of all of our life. We are stewards of our time. We're stewards of our thoughts. We're stewards of our speech. 
We're stewards of all the relationships God's given us. We're stewards of many things. And for us as believers, as Christians, work is all of that stuff. And so as we listen to these slime trails, what we're really asking is, are all of these areas showing proper godly diligence? Or are there evidences of laziness in any of these areas? For instance, there's career, the work you do there. There's the work you need to be doing on your own character. There's the work of hospitality, of welcoming others into your home and into your life. There's the work of learning, of going out and gaining more information so that you can be a better servant and more useful to others. There's the work of caring for the property that God's already given you. There's the work of helping others. There's the work of keeping up with friends and not letting friendships grow stagnant. There's the work of dating your wife. There's the work of investing in your children. There's the work of prayer. There's the work of evangelism. There's the work for preparation for future emergencies and so on and so forth. There's a lot to do. And so we're not really asking, am I the cartoon? What we're asking is, is any of the cartoon in me? And the answer is, if so, let's deal with it. One last thing. You know how annoying it is when you're at the end of the tube of toothpaste and like for two or three days, it's, there's just enough in there to not allow you to throw it away in good conscience, but you're going to spend three days wrestling the toothpaste tube. Something tragic has befallen me and I want to ask for your prayers. About a year ago, my wife brought home a large box of toothpaste samples. And that is our prime source of toothpaste. It has been for over a year, and this isn't going to stop anytime soon. That box is still very full. But what this means is that every two days, I get to experience the pain of getting that last bit of toothpaste out of the tube. So every two days, I go through this. Pray for me. I bring that up because some of you might come in here fully exhausted, fully out, and you're going to be tempted to hear this sermon as an effort to squeeze just a little more blood out of the stone. And I want to tell you something. I just want to remind you of something that's all over the Bible, and it was absolutely uh, on full display uh, last week when we celebrated the resurrection. Let me just remind you of something. Obedience always energizes. Obedience always energizes. Yes, if you pour yourself out like Jesus in full obedience, you will crash. You will, you, will, you will sleep hard. You will have an experience of emptiness. But God is not so unjust as to overlook your good deeds. If you pour yourself out, he will fill you back up. You see, many people today are restless. And the Bible actually talks about this in Proverbs about the sluggard. The sluggard is restless. It's like, well, this is the one person you would think shouldn't be restless. As the person whose whole life is devoted to resting, the truth is, is that you might think you're done. You might think there's no more toothpaste left in the tube. But let me just tell you something. That is a low faith attitude. God will give you the faith to do the work he has called you to do. And if you can learn to step day by day with him and trust him with the day and not start trying to bank your energy but say, no, Lord, you know, you're going to take care of me today, and your, your mercies are new every morning. So don't, don't write all of this off because you think you've got no more toothpaste left in the tube. The truth is, is that God just puts more in there overnight, and you'll be okay. 
This is often the case with folks who feel exhausted. They think their solution to exhaustion is just to pull back. They pull back too far and they actually wind up having no rest because they're not engaged in the obedience that actually energizes. Okay, so with that said, we'll look at our three slime trails. The first one, failure to start, verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets, verse 14. As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard on his bed. Now, both of these verses have to do with a lazy person's difficulty in getting started. Now, we're going to talk more about verse 13 in a moment. But the idea of both of these verses, that is some kind of obstacle, real or imagined, is keeping a person from engaging in the work, whatever that work is, that God has for them. In verse 14, we see that the the sluggard has failed to win what uh, an evangelist, a British evangelist, called the battle of the blankets. He has failed to win the battle of the blankets. And let me just tell you something. Like, this is a huger, you know, the word adulting is becoming popular. Let me just tell you something. This is just a hinge moment of walking away from childhood and into adulthood is to decisively completely be done with the battle of the blankets. We all experience the seductress of cool sheets, of a perfectly tempered room, of a soft bed. We all know, we all know what that feels like. But friends, listen, if you're going to grow up, if you're going to be a contributor to the world, you've got to be done with the battle of the blankets. You can't be like the sluggard, who turns in his bed like a hinge on a door. You've got to get out of bed. You've got to win the battle of the blankets. Proverbs 6 is the first place we see extensive discussion of laziness, and it says there, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, like an armed man. And the truth is, is that poverty isn't simply financial. A person who has yet to win the battle of the blankets is just getting less out of life all around. So that's the failure to start, failure to finish. Look at verse 15. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. Uh, uh, The first two verses of our text have to do with the failure to start things, and this verse has to do with the difficulty of finishing things. There's another proverb that lines up with this one, and that's Proverbs 12, 27. It says, whoever is slothful, will not roast his game, but the diligent man will get precious wealth. So we've got two different pictures of eating here, something you need to do, something that is required to do, and something that requires a lot of effort. And the idea here is is that there are people who are lazy in the beginnings, and they use all of their minimal amounts of energy and motivation to get up and do the thing, and then they get halfway through or two-thirds of the way through, and they can't finish the thing. And so in the instance of these two Proverbs, the one who says that he won't roast his game and the one that says that he buries his hand in the dish, you've got all of this work starting on the front end and then a lack of follow-through, to a lack of finishing. The thing just remains undone. And unfortunately, in that respect, the sluggard looks at his life and says, I'm just not accomplishing much. He doesn't realize that you've got all of these open tabs, all of these things left to finish, and you could just finish them. The last step is in many ways the most delightful. Bring the food to your, bring the food to your mouth. Roast your game. Smell that sweet smoke. Finish what you've started. And so that's another slime trail. 
And the third one is simply this, a failure to come to terms with the cause of his misfortune. So he's having trouble starting things. He's having trouble finishing things. In verse 16, it says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. The sluggard is blind to the real cause of his misfortune. He thinks that life has turned against him. He thinks he's being treated unfairly. He thinks he can't catch a break. He thinks the game is rigged. He thinks everybody else is kissing the boss's rear end. And he thinks that he alone sees the foolishness of the rat race. And all of that is just wrong. The results of his life are the consequence of his failure to banish laziness. To tell laziness, I'm sorry, you're not a tolerable vice that I'm going to allow to exist in one portion of my life. You're a sin against the holy God. You're a sin against my life, my future, and you will not be allowed here any longer. The sluggard never gets to that point. The sluggard never sees it. Derek Kidner says, the sluggard will be the last to see his own features here. The sluggard will be the last to see his own features here, for he has no idea that he is lazy. He thinks he's not a shirker, but a realist, not self-indulgent, but simply not a morning person. Proverbs has dealt with this subject extensively, but the last word really is Proverbs 26, 16 in the sense of what is the heart behind laziness? And the heart behind laziness is pride. It's a pride that there will be infinite tomorrows. It's a pride that thinks that everything that you're imagining will somehow come to pass. It's a pride to think that the rules don't apply to you and somehow you can figure out the shortcut and work less diligently than everybody else. One commentator said that a lazy person does more wishing than working. A lazy person does more wishing than working. Now, that's sort of the diagnosis. Those are the slime trails. Now, I want to talk about what I think is probably one of the most important issues to discuss in our particular day and age, and it's rooted, again, back in verse 13. And I would describe this as the problem of turning little things into lions. The problem of turning little things into lions. Look at verse 13. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. You see, what he's doing here is he's taking something that has a remote possibility of happening and using it as an excuse. He's taking something that has a remote possibility of happening and he's using it as an excuse. By saying remote possibility, I mean lions certainly do exist. And if you were to encounter one in the streets, that would not be a great situation. But the sluggard takes the least possible thing and uses it as an excuse not to get to work. You see, if there really was a line in the streets, the industrious person would be like, well, I'll either work inside today or I'll call some of the boys and we'll go kill the lion. The lion isn't actually the point. The lion is an excuse to allow for self-indulgence. Lions do exist. It would be really bad to get caught by one, but they tend not to exist in downtown Jerusalem. And so I want to talk about what one particular lion that I see being lifted up very often today, a common lion in the streets excuse, and that is what you might describe as the fear of overworking, the fear of burnout, the fear of becoming a workaholic. I believe that for the younger generations, this is almost entirely a lion in the streets. I believe it's mostly false. And I believe it has almost no bearing for most of us. 
it is unlikely to see a lion walking down Quivira Road. It is unlikely that any of us will spend extended times in the difficulties of overworking. And if we do, that's one of those areas that provides more immediate feedback. And not only that, it may not be all that bad. So let me explain to you why I think that the fear of overworking, all of the calls for work-life balance, all of the fears of burnout, all of that is, I think, a cultural imposition that is a line in the streets for the younger generations in particular. So C.S. Lewis wrote many exceedingly insightful things. My opinion, what I'm about to read to you, is the most insightful of everything I've ever read, him, read of him. And it's in Screwtape. And he says, and you just need to pay attention, it's kind of a longer quote, but just really please stay engaged with me on this, okay? So he's talking about Screwtape as a letter between demons. It's a fictional, imaginatory, like, how do we seduce people away from their God-given callings and their God-given joys and so on and so forth. And so one demon writes to another, the use of fashions in thought, the use of fashions in thought is to distract the attention of men from their real dangers. We direct the fashionable outcry of each generation against those vices of which it is in least danger and fix its approval on the virtue nearest to that vice which we are trying to make endemic. The game is to have them running about with fire extinguishers whenever there is a flood and all crowding to that side of the boat which is already nearly underwater. Thus, we make it fashionable to expose the dangers of enthusiasm at the very moment when they are all really becoming worldly and lukewarm. A century later, when they are all uh, when we are really making them all Byronic and drunk with emotion, the fashionable outcry is directed against the dangers of mere understanding. Cruel ages are put on their guard against sentimentality, feckless and idle ones against respectability, lecherous ones against Puritanism. And whenever all men are really hastening to be slaves or tyrants, we make liberalism the prime bogey. What he's saying there is, is that it's a very intentional, dark plot to get a generation focused on the one thing that has the least danger to them while being ignorant of and passive of the one thing that has the most danger to them. And so that's why I want to suggest to you that, that for our particular moment in culture, fears of overworking, all of the, the, the kind of propagandized, propagandized versions of work-life balance, I believe all of that is actually wrong. It's the thing you have the least danger of overcoming. Here's an example of that. So I'm a, I grew up a mid-Missouri Southern Baptist male, right? That's, that's, my, that's my biography. Are there any mid-Missouri Southern Baptist males who struggle with anorexia? Conceivably. Are there any mid-Missouri Southern Baptist males who struggle with type 2 diabetes? More likely. What would you expect to see if, what, what would you think if, if I told you, you know, I, 
I know I need to like work on my diet, but I just, I just really don't want to become anorexic. You would try not to snicker, and you would say under your breath, Chris, I think, I think you're okay. <laughs> I, I, don't think that's, I don't think that's a likelihood. So can just to be hard on you for a minute, if you're younger, I don't think you need to be worried about workaholism. I don't think you need to worry about overworking. I think that is uh, what anorexia would be for me. Is it possible that at some point I get there? It is possible. But probably what anorexia would be for me is a line in the streets. It would be a thing I'm inventing that my flesh is potentially even inventing to keep me from going all out in the critical moments of my life when going all out can benefit so many for so long. So I want you to understand that for the last 20 plus years, no generation has ever been subject to constant advertising and constant media messaging. You see, the rest of us, we all just like would watch a little TV and that would be done, or we'd listen to the radio and that would be done. And whenever we're doing any of those things, we're being subjected to messaging and advertising and so forth. But so much of our lives was not, was not plugged into that. But let me tell you something. If, you, if you've spent your whole life in the digital world, you have been propagandized and advertised to nonstop for your entire life. And one of the main messages we're hearing is work-life balance, workaholism, burnout, and so on and so forth. I just want to remind you of some motivations for why those messages are pushed so frequently. Here's the simple truth. When you are idle, you buy stuff. When you are idle, you buy stuff. That's the whole plan. When you are not going hard, you buy stuff. And buy stuff fits into two categories, the material and the spiritual. When you are idle, you buy more stuff. And so there's a perfectly reasonable market-driven reason to get you to be super focused on rest and not work. But also, when you are an idol, you buy temptation. There is nothing more tempting to the devil than an idle person. I don't know if that's good theology or not to say that the devil is tempted, but I'll tell you straight up, when you do not win the battle of the blankets... You're, it, it feels like you're provoking the devil to come to you in that moment and fill your head full of all sorts of stupid ideas. When you are excessive in recreation, it's no good for you. Thomas Watson said, idleness is the time of temptation. Idleness is the time of temptation. An idle person is the devil's tennis ball tossed around by him at his pleasure. Matthew Henry said, the devil visits idle men with his temptations. God visits industrious men with his favors. One other Puritan, I couldn't find the, the guy, he wrote, when we are off the path of diligence, we are on the path of temptation. And so there is a 
material, market-driven reason to push rest on you, excessive rest, fears of overwork, and there's a spiritual reason too. Excessive idleness leads to excessive temptation. An idle person is just more apt to buy, including bad stuff. There's a third reason, an anecdotal reason, that some people concern, or seem to be concerned about overworking, and that is namely that they think they had a parent who worked too much. And at this point, I want to suggest that that diagnosis is, is merely a symptom of something else going on. And I've walked through this with plenty of people, myself, and so on. It's not that someone is working too much. It's the why behind their working that makes all of the difference. And it's also the reason why some people do work too much. For instance, you say, oh, my, my, parent loved, my, my parent worked too much. Like, no, your parent loved money too much. Do you understand that those two things are not the same? Or, well, my parent worked too much. Like, no, your parent loved the praise of his coworkers too much. Or, my parent worked too much. Like, no, your parent was confused about all of his home duties, and he didn't know what to be about, and so he just understood work and did work. The problems there are not working too much. Those, those problems would not have been solved with rest. Those problems would not have been solved with reprieve. Those were heart things going on that all of us struggle with, by the way. Uh, they are not about the hours. The hours flow from the heart. So friends, I don't want you to let the fear of workaholism be a line in the streets that keeps you from getting out there and getting after it. If we use the Bible as our sufficient source of truth, which it is, then we will see that it is decidedly pro-hustle. How does God reveal himself to us from day one? Work. He is working. That's the first thing we see God do in creation. He's working. How does God reveal himself to us in Christ? Would you say that Jesus was a hard worker? Well, he was such a hard worker that people thought he was crazy. What about all the heroes of the faith? Was Paul a hard worker? Was Moses a hard worker? Was David a hard worker? And what about those in church history? You know what Luther said? If I rest, I rust. If I rest, I rust. You were actually created to work. You were created to work. You were created to work six out of the seven days of every week that you live, and 16 or so out of the every hours in a day. You were made to be a body in motion. Everything God makes is a body in motion. If something God makes is not in motion, it usually means it's dead. You were created to work, and not only were you created to work, but if you were saved, you were recreated to work. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sometimes we think about uh, particular struggles of sins as ditches. And for instance, we talk about the ditch of licentiousness and legalism. Licentiousness just being like, do whatever you want to do. And legalism, like tons of rules. Or the ditch of disorder and the ditch of order. And what we need to remember is, is that those ditches are rarely equal. 
and that, and that the, the ditch of licentiousness is far graver than the ditch of legalism. You don't want to be in either ditch, but one will kill you quickly. The other you will repent of, Lord willing. Well, when it comes to work and laziness, yes, overworking is a possibility. Lions are real. Is it possible that you will veer into the ditch of overwork? Yes, it's possible. When that happens, there may be a heart issue behind that that the Lord will help you to see. Or it may just be that you just need to figure out your life schedule and so on and so forth. The truth is, is that when the Bible talks about these two ditches, they are not equal ditches. The ditch of laziness, the ditch of a little sleep, a little slumber, the ditch of the battle of the blankets, the ditch of being slow to start things, slow to finish things, that is not the same as a ditch of working really hard. Those are not the same problems. And I want to encourage you, this is going to be kind of a short sermon, I'm actually almost done. I want to encourage you to understand that God in his wisdom has, like, whenever, whenever, generally, whenever the, uh, the highway department wants you to be able to go fast, they put guardrails up, right? Because uh, they know, like, well, you know, bad things can happen and, uh, at, at 70 miles an hour that are more consequential than bad things happening at 30 miles an hour and so on and so forth. And so you get these guardrails. And I want to encourage you to see that God has, through his law and his gospel, created guardrails that will help you avoid overwork. He's already built it into the system. So on the one hand, we have a law guardrail, and on the other hand, we have a gospel guardrail. And what are these guardrails that I'm talking about? The law guardrail is the Sabbath. The law guardrail is the Sabbath. In Exodus 20, in the Ten Commandments passage, verses 9 through 10, God tells the people, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. Friends, if you'll just keep the Sabbath, Jesus gives us real clarity about not being dominated by the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. But one guardrail against overwork is just to literally check out on Sundays. Just be completely at rest. All of the other things going on, nope, you're just going to keep the Sabbath. That's, that's, the law, that's the law guardrail, and it's a good guardrail. And the other guardrail is the gospel. So over here we have the, the, guard, the guardrail of the Sabbath, and over here we have the guardrail of salvation. See, Jesus has made us right with God by saving us. And that means that work is not all of the things it would have been if we weren't made right with God. Work just gets to be about fruitfulness and productivity and effort and earnestness. It's no longer about earning God's favor. It's a celebration of all that he's done for us, not an accumulation of merit. And so once you realize you were saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast, it doesn't make you less inclined to work. It just makes you better at working. And so we've got these two guardrails. The one is practice the Sabbath. Take one day a week and just completely unplug. Be lazy. Feel weird about how little you are accomplishing. People ask if I'm a Sabbatarian. It's like, I don't really know if I am, but I know like I think you should engage in the activity of rest on one day a week to the extent that it makes you feel uncomfortable. That's when you know you're keeping the Sabbath. 
And then over here, you have this sort of much grander and glorious thing than just the Sabbath, and that is the true Sabbath rest that the Bible talks about, peace with God. I don't have to use work as a means of self-justification. I don't have to use work to earn approval. Honestly, God's my father now. He's going to take care of me. Work just gets to be about enjoying him, about doing life with God. And so for that reason, friends, I would say that if there is a line in the streets, it is laziness. It is not overwork. Another preacher once wrote, God has hidden every precious thing in a way that it is a reward to the diligent, a prize to the earnest, but a disappointment to the slothful soul. All nature is arrayed against the lounger and the idler. The nut is hidden in its thorny case. The pearl is buried beneath the ocean waves. The gold is imprisoned in the rocky bosom of the mountains. The gem is found only after you crush the rock which encloses it. The very soil gives its harvest as a reward to the laboring farmer. So truth in God must be earnestly sought. Well, in introducing communion this morning, I just want to take a moment just to praise Jesus, who is in all things the diverse excellencies. Uh, Jesus is the finisher and the completer of everything you're about. He, he who began a good work in you is faithful to carry it to the day of completion. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. And even right now, he works to uphold the universe by the word of his power. We have a savior who is always at work. And the work that he is still doing and did empowers us, like Paul, to work harder than any of them while knowing full well that it's not really us, but Jesus who is working in us. And the longer you walk with Jesus, the plan is, is for your personality and your character and the way you conduct your life to look more and more like his. And not only is that the plan, but Romans 8.28 says that it is going to be so. Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknow, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So I present all this to you today. I, I really highly doubt that anyone here says, oh man, I am, I am like, that's like a perfect representation of me. I am the sluggard. I don't think that's probably what's going on here. I think probably in God's grace through his Holy Spirit, what's going on here is he's just saying like, yeah, this is something we need to deal with so that it doesn't become a bigger deal. And what we have before us today is the reminder that when we identify any sin in our lives, that sin has been paid for with the blood of Jesus. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're walking in him today, come and partake of the table. Come and partake of the bread which represents his body given for you and the cup which represents his blood shed for you and say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I get to see another area of my life where I get to celebrate your perfect grace. And now I trust you. I trust that you've shown me this so that I might celebrate the grace and mercy that you give me and that we can walk together figuring this particular thing out. So if you're a follower of Jesus, come partake of the table now.